Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, who is the president of the United States today? Pfizer has announced it's on the verge of a vaccine for COVID-19. And Alex Trebek, the host of Jeopardy, has lost his battle with pancreatic cancer. Hopefully, his passing will bring more research dollars to help this deadly cancer. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. The U.S. has a new president. The world has new hope. No wonder the sun is shining. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. I pledge to be a president who seeks not to divide, but unify. Who doesn't see red states and blue states, only sees the United States. That's great, but he's not even the president yet. And and, and you don't get to just come on the show and just do that without, you know, uh, ahead of the host like that. And and wait for the president. I will strive to be a vice president, like Joe was to President Obama. Loyal, honest, and prepared. Waking up every day, thinking of you and your family. Because now is when the real work begins. All right, there you have. Can I go now? Okay. Uh, good afternoon. It is twelve eleven. I know everybody's excited, but sheesh. Uh, twelve eleven nine hundred CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air as we enter week number thirty five. Uh, feel free to jump into the fray. Facebook and Twitter. You'll find the podcast edition of the commentary there. The phone lines are always open, and you can always send us a note via the website. Uh, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Lots to talk about today. We all know what happens south of the border. Uh, let's get to it. Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. He's with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. What's the buzz like down there today? I mean, look, it's, uh, it's, there is a, you know, optimistic feel amongst the Biden supporters in this nation. All seven are looking for some kind of change. And there is, uh, a political divide that is still uh, incredibly visible with more than 70 million people voting for uh, President Trump. And while there is kind of a sense of, of you know, jubilation amongst the Democratic Party, uh, there is still a sense of unknown, uh, given the fact that we have a president who has refused to concede so far. So where is the president today? We know he was at the golf course over the weekend. Sort of uh, take us through what his day's been like today. What's he doing? Uh, we don't know. The president has made no um, no appearances on camera since Thursday. Uh, there have been very little by way of pool reports coming out from what's happening inside the White House. And the only way to get uh, kind of a vision to what's happening either inside the residence or the Oval Office is to watch the president's Twitter feed. And he has been retweeting, uh, you know, some of the, the Republicans who stand by him by claiming that this was an election that was stolen and that he needs to continue on with his fight. Uh, but again, uh, you know, President Trump has been pushing for for months now that this election has been fraudulent. And the one thing that needs to be made clear here is there has been no evidence brought forth, just allegations of fraud. Um, And with the president refusing to exceed uh, to to uh, concede right now, what it really does is show that we have a president who is 
simply refusing to accept the reality of the situation, given the fact that Democratic and Republican secretaries of state from around the country have said there was no election fraud. Um, and the, the, the lead that Joe Biden has in these states before certification continues to grow. And so he is in the White House today, though. Is that accurate, the president? Yes, he, he spent the weekend golfing. Um, yeah. you know, it's important to remember on Saturday when when Joe Biden was declared victorious, uh, right. President Trump was on the golf course, and then 24 hours later was on a golf course, and today it's radio silence. So uh, I, I was just noticing Biden was on a television in front of a very presidential-looking ba- uh, banner doing a COVID-19 uh, news briefing. So he's already doing news conference uh, news conferences and that sort of thing. That cannot be sitting well with the president. Well, I mean, it, it's probably not sitting well with the president, nor is it sitting well with his campaign. It was told staff that the president's still in the fight and that they're going to continue forward with their uh, potential opportunities for litigation uh, in, in any of the contested states that they're looking at right now. But you, realistically, at the end of any election, no matter whether it's this one or, or, or years past, uh, the president-elect uh, begins uh, a transition term, which you know lasts until inauguration, and they begin uh, acting presidential. They begin putting their ducks in a row uh, to ensure that there's going to be a smooth transition of power. And with President Trump so far refusing, and with the government services agency refusing to sign off on uh, refusing to sign off on on Biden being a winner, uh, Biden is being left and forced into a position that has to make him seem presidential, especially when he's you know running into the headwinds of a health care crisis that is um, that is is kind of akin to where he was in 2008 when he became vice president in the middle of a financial crisis. He needs to try and get things figured out before he starts the job. So where is the Republican Party on all of this, Reggie? I mean, we saw the the sons uh, over the weekend screaming and yelling that this is a new uh, Republican Party. Where are they? Time to stand up. All of that sort of uh, rhetoric. Have we heard anything officially from the Republican Party on this? We've heard from members of the Republican Party. And what we're seeing is that the GOP is still fractured. There is still a Trump Republican Party and there is still a pre-Trump. Republican Party, the pre-Trump GOP uh, is either silent right now uh, or they are calling up and congratulating Vice President, uh, rather President-elect uh, Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris. Um, the, the, the Trump Republican Party is standing in line with him. Lindsey Graham over the weekend telling the president not to concede. Ted Cruz, quote unquote, saying that we're not, you know, that America is not going to coronate Joe Biden uh, as president-elect. Um, and, and it simply just falls out of line with tradition. You know, President Trump is fighting back in states right now where Joe Biden has a commanding lead, and it would be nearly impossible for Donald Trump to catch up at this point. Uh, and at this point, four years ago, after disparaging Donald Trump, the candidate, these people all stood in line uh, and said, Hillary Clinton needs to stand down because you have been elected president-elect. There is a stark divide right now in this party that, that is representative of the political divisiveness that we have seen created over the last four years. So who will pay for all of the legal battles that Trump uh, will find himself in as he uh, you know, tries to look for a, a way to win this election? Is the Republican Party going to stand by him? The Republican Party might, but they're banking on the Trump base to pay for this. There have been uh, campaign emails that have gone out over the last several days uh, begging for uh, supporters to pitch in to the legal fund to be able to challenge this. It's not cheap. In Wisconsin alone, it's $3 million to uh, ask for a recount in a state where the margins that Biden has won by are larger than what 
Donald Trump won by four years ago. Uh, but in those same campaign emails, there's a uh, footnote that says, yes, your money will go to pay for this, but also it's going to go and cover off some of the deaths that we've incurred uh, since this campaign began. But they're banking on supporters uh, to bankroll uh, the, the legal fights that they have right now. And we need to be very clear about this. The legal fights that the president has have so far uh, you know, borne no fruit. There have been zero wins with the exception of one in Pennsylvania. Uh, and with Biden's lead growing in Georgia, growing in Nevada, growing in Pennsylvania, it really is hard to see how the Trump campaign is going to argue that there were so many clerical errors uh, you know, across so many states that it led to such a, you know, an arduous loss for him. It, it's just, it's, it's, it, it, it doesn't, two and two simply aren't adding up right now. So at what point does the Republican Party say, all right, that's it, we're out? Uh, I mean, we have to wait and see. Do, do they wait and see after the Electoral College meets on December 14th to certify the vote? Do they wait to see after November 15th when Trump campaign staff members uh, are supposed to lose their job and they don't know if they're going to have a job beyond that? You know, it, it's hard to ask your campaign to stand in line and, and push the president's narrative if the future of their careers, uh, you know, is going to be cut off within six days. We have to wait to see kind of what plays out over the next week to see what's going to happen. Where he, uh, We had heard uh, over the weekend that uh, people like Jared Kushner had been trying to bend the president's ear and, and, and tell him to uh, just move on and step aside. What, is that accurate? And, and what sort of backroom meetings do you think are going on right now in, in, in trying well, to wade through all this? Yeah, we've heard that the Jared Kushner thing may not have happened or may have been reported uh, inaccurately. But we do know that the first lady has tried to kind of twist the president's arm to say that, you know, reality is banging on the front door of the White House. Uh, and you can only ignore the doorbell for so long. Uh, but at the same time, the first lady's Twitter account made a point of saying, you know, we can only accept legal votes and not illegal votes, which there's no you know, evidence of that. So, you know, they're kind of going all in while at the same time trying to make sure that they're all out. Uh, and, you know, it, it, there are going to be backroom conversations. There have been reports that the president does simply understand that the math isn't in his favor and he's trying to look at every single legal option that he has. Uh, but, you know, there are only so many seconds on a clock uh, before it runs out and hits zero. And that time is 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 kind of working against President Trump right now. And the longer he takes to concede, we also need to point out the longer that eats into Joe Biden's transition time and the longer it holds up the financing that is supposed to be made available to a president-elect. So this really could simply just be political filibustering uh, to kind of, you know, make the job for an incoming president more difficult. Do you think that uh, the president will ride you know, over and above what, what happens with his legal battles, and let's just assume they run their course, do you think he's going to ride this right to the end, right to Inauguration Day, or once it, is, uh, once it appears to be over for him, he's like, that's it, I'm out. I'm not, not going to give them the opportunity to take that picture of me uh, as a loser, per se. Yeah, you know, it's, it's hard to determine what the president is going to do, but, you, you know, you have to think back to the president's past. He had uh, a father who was incredibly strong-willed who said you're either a winner and a fighter or you're a loser. Um, and President Trump, over the four years that we have seen him in political office, does not like to be on the other end uh, of winning, even if, you know, the, the non-wins stack up against him more so than the wins do. Uh, he continues to fight on. Um, he doesn't oftentimes throw his hands up, and we've seen that, uh, you know, play out even over the last nine months since the pandemic has been in play. You know, you have had two 
legislative branches arguing with each other to try and get um, support to the American public. And the president simply didn't just throw his hands up. He pegged it on somebody else to make the other person the loser. Donald Trump does not just walk away from something. So it's, it's hard to say if he'd simply just walk away before Inauguration Day or if he will kind of slam his fist down uh, daily until, you know, 12 noon on January 20th. You talked about Lindsey Graham and, and others that were uh, still defending the president. Uh, is, is his, can you see his support waning? Can you see things slowly, just uh, the opportunity diminishing? I mean, support on Republicans, uh, you know, potentially you may see, um, you know, those members of the GOP who are institutionalists, who, who kind of look to the party as this is what it once was, may fall, maybe falling back to where they were because they understand now that at least for the time being, they don't need President Trump to play kingmaker for them. Uh, for the base, this is not going to go quietly. The, the bots are out. The trolls are out. The base is out. Uh, and they are pushing the narratives from President Trump, even without any kind of um, you know, evidence or proof that he, that this election was stolen from him. Uh, and they believe these kind of traffic conspiracies that votes have been rigged to better, you know, go to Joe Biden than to, to President Trump. Uh, and we are seeing that play out on Twitter. We're seeing that play out in the streets. We're seeing the, the political divide that has only grown over the last four years uh, play itself out, not in any kind of uh, aggressive manner, but in a politically vocal manner where you have two very stark parties right now uh, and a difficult task now for Biden to try and unify them together. What? How does the Republican Party move on from this? Do they, uh, you know, once the door is closed, do they just change the channel and move on? How, how do they, uh, especially after the four years, how do they move on with this? And, and specifically, another candidate eventually. Uh, will the, will they be more like Donald Trump, or have they? Do you think they'll be more uh, a centrist, someone who's less com- combative? Where do you think this is going to take the party? Well, I mean, look, again, we said Donald Trump doesn't just walk away from something and he may be forced uh, because of the Constitution to walk away from the Oval Office, but he's not going to walk away from this platform that he now has to speak to tens of millions of people who latch on to every word that he says. And, you know, we've said that the Republican Party is fractured with the old and the new. Trump is going to still try to play a key role and very well might. You know, two years from now in the midterms and four years from now uh, in the general, he does have uh, a grip on this Republican Party. And, you know, we've seen the legislation that has been widely panned and criticized, you know, by, by a large part of the world and Republicans standing in line with him. And, and there's nothing to say that they're simply going to just walk away. There are people who will rely on President Trump's bombast and rhetoric to get reelected. So I think we are going to continue to hear from President Trump over the next two and four years. It's just a matter of how much does he say will be relevant to what's going on until we're into an election period. All right, last question, Reggie. What, obviously, you haven't heard from the president. Uh, what is the media doing at this point? Just waiting for him to, to, to make another statement? Is there anything scheduled at all? No, the president has nothing scheduled. The lid has been called. And, and I mean, look, the media is we're doing what we have to do. We have to pay attention to what's happening inside the White House. But we're in a transition right now. We also have to pay attention to the fact that there is a president elect out there trying to get their job done as well. So while you're not hearing from the sitting president and you're hearing from an incoming president, uh, you simply have to, to, to work with the contrast that you're being provided. Uh, in real time. And if Donald Trump says something, the focus will shift to what the president is doing right now to potentially stand in the way uh, of, of the new administration trying to get her job done.
Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Let's bring in Dr. Stephen Orr, uh, researches politics and teaches American politics at the University of Toronto uh, at Mississauga and Carleton University in Ottawa and is with us now. Dr. Stephen Orr, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm great. I'm great. How about yourself? I'm doing great, thank you. Your thoughts on how this is all played out, how, uh, you know, obviously people sitting on the edge of their seat pretty much all weekend to see this come through, and, and where we are now with the president not conceding. Yeah, I mean, one of the things to, I guess, remember is that this election was always going to be strange, happening in the middle of a global pandemic, and and the changes to the whole electoral process as a result of that. So maybe none of us should be surprised that election night turned into election week, and the Trump campaign seems to want to have election night continue to be election month. So um, maybe maybe this is all kind of things going normally in, in a time of uncertainty. How many options are there? I mean, are there, are there options for him? I mean, is this just a lot of bluster? Is, is there anything credible here? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things to remember is that the Trump campaign is right. Joe Biden has not won the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. Unlike we have here north of the border with Elections Canada, Americans don't have a single body that runs every one of their elections. And so each state has their own rules and processes and deadlines for certifying results. And so when the Trump campaign is is saying the election's not over, that's what they're trying to indicate. But media and organizations have never called the election. They they project the election results based on the information that they have in front of them. And it's not as if they're guessing by the seat of their pants. News organizations are looking at the data that's come in, all of the votes that have already come in. And as it stands, unless there is just a weird, weird box somewhere filled with just Trump votes in four or five different states, the election is over and Joe Biden will be president. And so, yeah, the legal strategy is the only thing that we're really seeing from them that has, I think, any hope at all. And I don't think that there's a a strong shot there. And how long before he's played all of these legal cards? Well, I mean, as we're seeing right now, if if you are nerdy and paying attention to individual state uh, state uh, courts, judges are basically tossing aside uh, Trump the Trump campaign's cases uh, left, right, and center. There, there's not a lot of merit to the arguments that the Trump campaign is making. Instead, what they're more or less saying is maybe something went wrong. You should let us go look for evidence instead of presenting evidence that something went wrong. And judges, not just in the United States, but everywhere, tend not to look kindly on that approach. Where uh, are you surprised we haven't heard from, uh, more from the Republican Party on this? I mean, one of the complicating factors on that is that Donald Trump is still president for the next two months, no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of very important elections coming up in Georgia uh, in, uh, I think, January 5th that is going to determine whether Republicans hold control of the Senate. And so they can't exactly uh, say, oh, well, Donald Trump, you're wrong. You know, just accept right. the results and get over it because they kind of want his supporters to get out and vote in, in January. 
what about the next candidate for the Republicans, whoever that will be? Will we see more uh, like Donald Trump, or will we see more like, say, what a Biden is, more traditional type president? Yeah, this is a really interesting time in American politics. I mean, uh, Donald Trump's particular kind of style of politics had not been really tried at the national stage. And I mean, as we're seeing with this election, you know, over 70 million Americans were in favor of of someone like Donald Trump. And so um, I, uh, the fact that he won the election at all in 2016, the fact that he did so well in this election, uh, even even if he is ultimately going to lose, I think is going to definitely inspire other candidates to consider whether, you know, Donald Trump's kind of rock star presidency is a viable route for other Republicans. And I think one of the things that we're going to see over the next two years is kind of a a battle for the soul of the Republican Party between kind of older Republicans who want to return to maybe someone more like a, um, I don't mean this as an insult to to Joe Biden, but kind of a more boring presidential candidate, or whether they want somebody who is a, a rock star like Donald Trump. Do you think uh, once the legal options are are exhausted that the president will ride this right to the very end, right to Inauguration Day, or do you think he'll say, you know, I'm out? I mean, I don't remember the last time that Donald Trump ever admitted that he was wrong or that he had lost anything. I mean, you can go back to the primaries back in the 2016 presidential election when other candidates beat him, and he, he contested those elections and still to this day hasn't said things like, yeah, Ted Cruz actually beat me in, I think it was Iowa. So I don't, I don't imagine Donald Trump is going to be particularly gracious in concession. And I mean, he doesn't really have an incentive to be. He can continue to fundraise on, on fighting this election and he can continue to look, uh, look towards maybe running again four years from now if, if his supporters think that he was uh, hard done by in this election. Uh, who do you think is going to pay for his legal bills? How long will the Republican Party want to spend on that? That That is a fantastic question, and I think it has a lot to do with the Republican Party guessing at whether Trump supporters will support someone else. If they think that Donald Trump is the only reason that there are, that there are a significant number of voters supporting them, well, then it's entirely possible they'll continue to prop up his legal challenges and his, his opposition. If it looks like they can toss him safely and move on to the next candidate, well, then they'll do that, too. I mean, political parties at the end of the day are businesses and they they want the best thing for for their constituents. So do you think he'll be there on Inauguration Day? I I think that it's highly unlikely that he will be there on Inauguration Day. I think I think we'll see him tweeting. Maybe he'll even hold a rally of his own. But no, I don't think the president uh, will be joining uh, Joe Biden uh, on inauguration stage. Do you think he's had enough of politics? Do you think he'll try he'll try to continue on with this? You know, at what point? Again, he's not a he's not a spring chicken either. At, at what point does he say I've had enough of this? I'm just going back to being Trump. I mean, it's not often the case that politicians get out of the game willingly. It's it, politicians you know, for, for, for everything that they do are also, you know, drawn to the spotlight. And can Donald Trump get some of that same spotlight when he is outside of elected office? 
I think I think he'll try, and and whether or not that's successful or not will determine whether or not he goes away si- quietly, or whether we see him again in the 2022 midterms, or maybe running again for president in 2024. Do you think this settles things down for a while in the United States? Many people were worried that over the weekend there could be some sort of clashes and what have you, violence. Uh, you know, obviously during uh, uh, you know the the day before the election, there a lot of places were boarding up buildings. Do you think we've seen the last of that now, or do you think uh, hell will break out once this is finally declared officially? I think that the the divisions that exist in uh, U.S. politics existed before Donald Trump, uh, and I think they're going to continue to exist after Joe Biden. Uh, is it going to be as as chaotic a time as it has been for the last four years? Probably not, but I imagine it will still be messy. I think the the advantage for us here in Canada and for the global stage is that U.S. politics is going to become easier to predict for for the rest of us. So Americans might have continue to struggle, but the global stage is going to have a little bit easier time having a uh, more boring president in the White House. <laughs> when they don't hear from every single hour. I was going to say every day. It's even more than that. Uh, oh, Dr. Yeah. Stephen Orr has been with us. Uh, research is politics, American politics, the University of Toronto, Mississauga, and Carleton University in Ottawa. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thank you very much. Uh, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, hope you're doing well. Uh, great to speak with you today. Absolutely. Hope you had a nice weekend, Scott. I did, and uh, you too. Uh, what are your thoughts about what transpired over the course of the weekend? You've seen a few of these in your time. Uh, yeah. Your thoughts on how this is all uh, played out? Well, I hope to see a few more too, but yes, it, it was certainly very interesting. Um I think, again, a lot of people sort of expected what would happen simply because as the norm- numbers started to change in Georgia, Pennsylvania, um, even though Arizona has dropped quite significantly from Election Day, it's moved back into a higher category. When you put all those things together, and Nevada as well, um, in the end, ultimately, it looked like jo- Joe Biden was at least, if nothing else, going to be declared the winner of the U.S. presidential election. Due to the fact that Donald Trump is obviously going to put forward legal challenges, one assumes there will be at least one visit to the U.S. Supreme Court, if not two, because it can be on two separate matters. Um, I think we're looking at a long time before Joe Biden can be confidently called the next president of the United States. Right now, mathematically, he's completely ahead. We also use the term president-elect incorrectly in history now, Scott, which I, I don't quite understand how this has happened over the past few decades, but you are only the president-elect once all the states have been certified and once all legal challenges, if any, are off the books. Until that time, you're actually not. Now, yes, I know that Al Gore was actually called the president-elect for 37 days during the time that all that confusion in the 2000 presidential election with George W. Bush, Florida, and the Hanging Chads controversy, but nevertheless... I just I, I love how the media sort of rushes off with this um, this idea and this concept, and there's quite a lot of politicians on both sides of the spectrum who do this as well. But in the end, ultimately, it's been the end of a. It, it may be the end of a fascinating period of time in U.S. politics. You know, a lot of interesting things, a lot of headaches, certainly a lot of work for people like you and I. We've had mm-hmm. lots to do the past few years, which has been quite extraordinary, and. Um, 
you know, I, how it all ends and whether Donald Trump continues with these challenges for a while, which I think he will, whether he decides to concede early, which I don't think he will at all, and whether this sort of fights its way into Inauguration Day, with which, with enough delays in the court system, it could. So... A lot of the, you know, the a lot of the, um, the, you know, a lot of the worry that people had, concern, all the suspense, all that is gone. But it's not quite over as of yet. There's yeah. still a ways to go. So, uh, are there more Donald Trumps waiting in the wings? Uh, has, has this, has he ignited a certain style of politics in America now? Will we see more like him, or are we going to see a shift back to more traditional styles? Well, look, and this is something obviously I'll write about and talk about, and I'm sure others will too. We're all sort of thinking about it right now. I guess my early comment would be this. Donald Trump is an enigma in himself. So to expect that there will be another Donald Trump is preposterous, much the same way as people used to say, who is the next Ronald Reagan? Well, guess what? The next Ronald Reagan never showed up because there was only one Ronald Reagan. But here's the thing. And we know this to be true, or at least this is the the thing that we cannot answer. Donald Trump's political movement, which is Trumpism, it's not really an ideological movement, but basically it's his followers and supporters who, you know, go along with the current president of the United States on most of his policies, either domestic or foreign policy-wise. Are they the ones who are now in charge of the Republican Party, or, as you sort of alluded to, Will the traditional values, the small-c conservative values that the Republican Party has held near and dear to its heart since the days of Barry Goldwater, obviously more emphasized with Reagan, and has carried on ever since, with little exceptions here and there, will that actually be able to take precedent or take the reins of power back? Mitt Romney on Meet the Press, the NBC show, said something to the effect of, you know, the Donald Trump is right now one of the most powerful politicians in Republican Party circles and is the, you know, the 900-pound gorilla in the Republican Party, which basically means that his influence is very, very strong. You know, whether Romney is just being a little nice with a bit of a jab at the side or whether he actually sees something remains to be seen. There are lots of Republicans I know and I speak with in the U.S., and many of them actually believe that the Republican Party has completely changed, that Donald Trump's influence in certain ways has changed the nature of how the Republican Party operated under the Goldwater days, the Reagan years, etc. And certainly some of what Donald Trump has done will remain. For example, establishing links with uh, the working class. I think that's going to last for a long period of time because it's important to reestablish that old connection. The forgotten man, the forgotten woman syndrome, that will certainly be discussed. You know, draining the swamp from Washington. That's a phrase that will probably exist for some time. Mm. There were some aspects that Donald Trump brought to the table that Republicans would be wise to keep, more of a populist nature. But unfortunately, there was also a lot of bad stuff that came with it. So will that all dissipate? Time will tell. What about world reaction to this? Uh, obviously, uh, we hear more from allies, but even specifically China, and, and many are talking about uh, the two Michaels today and how this may or may not affect them. Thoughts on, on relations with China through this? I don't know at this stage. Um, you know, the Chinese government obviously, obviously has had their, mo- their good moments and their bad moments with the previous administration or the current administration, the Trump administration. For that reason, 
They may take a wait-and-see approach with the incoming or forthcoming Biden administration, as long as all the legal challenges don't produce any instances of fraud or there's some sort of upheaval in the vote, which seems unlikely right now, but it's still in play, so you can't say it's completely gone. I think that probably with respect to the two Michaels, you will certainly have, if Joe Biden does become the president of the United States and everything moves forward, you'll obviously have two world leaders in North America, that being Justin Trudeau on our side and Biden on the U.S. side, who are not necessarily like-minded on everything, but are like-minded on a lot, including something like this. And I think that Joe Biden, who is probably aware of it on a light basis and will be made aware of it on a more informed basis as time goes along, I would imagine that Biden would probably try to broker something or try to at least intervene to help in some degree. Donald Trump certainly did try. I mean, there's instances of it, and we know that there were officials who spoke about this case, but unfortunately not very much has happened. The problem, again, and you and I have talked about it on this show, is that the Chinese government just doesn't care. They don't care who's in charge. It can be a Republican president, a Democratic president, could be an independent. It's meaningless to them. China basically does as they want, when they want, and if they feel like holding on to the two Michaels in the death camps for another two years, they will. That's part of the problem as well. So it might be helpful in that instance. It may not be helpful, or it just might remain the same. And now as we're reaching the period of uh, two years that they've been in those death camps, it's frustrating for their families, for their friends, for their loved ones. We all get that. And I think as Canadians, we're all tired of this, and we want to bring them home for sure. But I don't necessarily think that a president, Joe Biden, is going to necessarily change the channel that greatly. But if he can, that's to his benefit. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media Syndicated columnist as well, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Have a great day, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Shots made by Pfizer and BioNTech may be 90% effective at preventing COVID-19, and that seems to please Health Minister Christine Elliott. First of all, it is absolutely wonderful news. She says a group within the ministry is making arrangements for when a vaccine is available, including distribution and determining who will get the vaccine first. There's a lot of work to be done around that, but it's planning that needs to happen to make sure that we have uh, a fair and equitable response for everyone. Pfizer is one of several vaccine candidates in late-stage testing, and the data is early, meaning the projection rate could change by the time the study ends. Authorities have cautioned a successful vaccine is unlikely to arrive before the end of the year. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Uh, 900 CHML, I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, Good news. I I guess we can expect this. It is that, uh, you know, people have been saying that since probably the, uh, it'll be by about the middle of next year before this ends up in the arms of the average citizen, but certainly good news today. Let's bring in Dean Finelli, uh, PhD partner in intellectual property department of Safarth Shaw LLP's Washington office, 20 years in the pharmaceutical uh, management business and is with us now. Dean, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good to join you. Thank you for having me. So I guess this is, uh, uh, I guess, information that we're going to start to hear more and more of as we get towards uh, a vaccination and as we get towards the end of this year, beginning of next year. How significant is this announcement in the grand scheme of things? So I think it's, it's very significant. You know, when you think about uh, how far we've come, how quickly we've come, 
the U.S. FDA earlier this summer uh, put out a recommendation and guideline basically saying they were looking for 50% effectiveness. Now here, so far, based on this preliminary data, it looks like Pfizer's reporting 90% effectiveness, which is obviously uh, good news in the sense that in order to get to that you know, herd immunity, that situation where the virus can't continue to spread, uh, the more people we can get inoculated, the better. And certainly, the more effective it is, the less people we'd have to get inoculated or vaccinated to get to that point. So uh, very preliminary. You know, there's still a lot of questions out there. How long will this, uh, the immunity last? You know, will this help people uh, from spreading the virus? But uh, as far as, you know, how these vi- how this trial is progressing, uh, this is really good news. Uh, you bring up a valid point. I mean, once this is available to the general public, when will we know if it's working or not? How long will that take once, a, say, a mass vaccination starts? Yeah, so based on the preliminary data, it looks like this 90% effectiveness was reached. Uh, so if you recall, it's a two-shot uh, vaccination. You get your first shot, then you come back 21 days later, you get a second booster shot. And it looks like the 90% effectiveness is based on seven days after that. So, you know, it's, it's good news. But again, you know, there's a, still a lot of questions out there. You know, we're moving forward uh, very quickly in this. But, uh, you know, I think people listening should be assured, reassured that, you know, this data and the science is being looked at very closely. Uh, the FDA said they wanted to see two months worth of safety data after uh, these companies and these trials hit the midway point uh, after their second inoculation. So, uh, again, positive data, but it's still, you know, we have to, there's a lot we still don't know. And, uh, you know, to answer your question, you just don't know. I mean, hopefully uh, this, I mean, I suspect this will confer immunity for at least, you know, some period of time where, you know, we can get this under control, but you just don't know. Will this be the type of situation where you have to come back annually uh, or will it be a situation where, you know, we can just have a single shot and, you know, move on? Uh, you talked about it being 90%, a 90% effective rate. It, it, talk about what that means and how significant the 90% figure is. Would we ever get 100%? Uh, probably not. I mean, and, you know, I don't think we need uh, to get to 100%. Now, if you think about it, uh, it, that percentage really depends on how contagious it is. You know, so for measles, when we think of a measles vaccination, that's about 95% effective. You know, it's highly contagious. It spreads very easily here you know 90 percent. obviously the the higher the the number the better meaning nine ten people get this nine out of ten will uh you know have that immunity but uh it still remains to be seen you know this is preliminary data that's just being reported in the media we haven't seen that peer-reviewed data that's released uh that really gets into the nitty-gritty and the details yet uh that'll spread a lot more light onto this but nonetheless you know when you hit 90 percent uh, and the FDA was calling for 50%. I think this uh, should give people a lot of optimism. And uh, at least in my opinion, you know, we're moving in the right direction. And all things uh, considered, when you look at the Pfizer vac- vaccine candidate from a safety and effectiveness, uh, it looks like, you know, things are you know, very promising. Uh, would there any be, would there ever be a situation where this would be part of a flu shot or, or is this two totally different things? Yeah, they're two totally different viruses, two totally different uh, vaccinations. So, you know, certainly, you know, when you think of vaccinations, when we have our kids vaccinated, there are, 
combination vaccinations. But I think at this point, uh, you know, we, we at some point you may see that it really is going to determine uh, do we need to have an annual flu shot or excuse me, an annual coronavirus shot similar to the flu shot. So at this point, you know, we really don't know. There could be a situation, you know, down the road if this is an annual event where similar to the flu every fall we get this coronavirus vaccine. You know, I could see a situation where it's combined, but I think at this point it's a little premature. And why two shots? Is that common? Uh, so in these cases, the most advanced, so the Pfizer vaccine candidate, the Moderna, the AstraZeneca, they're all two-shot candidates. Johnson & Johnson is pretty far along. They're testing a one-shot candidate. Obviously, uh, you need that second shot in, in the case where it's, you know, a two-shot candidate to confer the appropriate amount of immunity to the person that's like that booster shot. But, you know, obviously from a compliance standpoint, a one-shot uh, vaccine would be ideal, you know, because the Pfizer vaccine, uh, it has to be kept at ultra-low temperature, meaning, you know, about minus 80 Celsius. Uh, and it also, you know, giving it to two or two shots, you know, you're going to have to track those individuals, especially when other vaccine candidates start being approved, you know, making sure that the same person that got that first vaccine gets the same on the second time. So there's that compliance issue. So, uh, you know, it adds to the logistics of things, but uh, nonetheless, uh, you know, it's at least for the Pfizer and Moderna, it looks like two shots are going to be necessary. Well, will, what are the cha- how much would uh, uh, these various vaccines be alike? D- does one of these companies know what the other one is up to? Are they basically on the same sort of path? Or could one be better than the other? Yeah, certainly one could be better than the other. And there's been a, a tremendous amount of transparency uh, when it comes to putting out information and peer-reviewed data and peer-reviewed journals. So uh, these companies do know what other companies are working on. Uh, some of these companies even put out their trial protocols, which is uh, pretty unheard of. That's typically kept very confidential. Uh, so they do know. But, you know, when you think of the Pfizer and Moderna, they're both both what's called RNA vaccines. RNA vaccines have never been approved for, for uh, you know, for treat for any vaccine. So the fact that, you know, these are moving forward uh, so quickly gives promise for the coronavirus, but also for other therapeutics, mRNA type uh, therapeutics and, and drugs are being developed for uh, hepatitis and various types of uh, treating rare and genetic diseases. So it gives promise in that regard as well. We've often heard, uh, and obviously that those in uh, th- that are high risk and those that work in high risk situations will obviously get this vaccination or have the opportunity to get it first. Um, any idea or what's your best guess when this will be in the average person's arm? Yeah, so that's a great point. And the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease has put out a uh, sort of a prioritization list where you can imagine essential uh, personnel, healthcare workers, we the first, then people with underlying conditions. So there is a priority list. Uh, you know, so to answer your question, generally for the general public that doesn't fit in one of those, you know, high risk categories, uh, realistically, you're probably looking at, you know, end of Q1, probably more realistically Q2 of next year before it's rolled out to the public. How do you think governments will roll this out? What sort of messaging will they uh, will they put alongside this? Or, or, you know, is everybody just so eager to get back to some sort of normal that everybody will be rolling up their sleeves? What do you think it's going to be like when it's time to get this? 
Yeah, I would. I think you know we're a little behind in the sense that there should be a marketing campaign. I think there's a lot of uh, skepticism, and I think a lot of that, at least in my opinion, revolves around the fact that people are afraid that this is moving too quickly, and you know certain steps as it refers to safety or efficacy will be. Uh, sort of, you know, glossed over. But I can assure people that's not the case. The FDA is looking at this. So I think there should be a marketing campaign, a publicity campaign, just to educate people and describe, you know, what these tests, what these vaccines have undergone, what tests they've, and what phase one, phase two, phase three means. And that these, you know, even though we're talking the term of 10, 11 months compared to, you know, a decade under typical circumstances to develop a vaccine here, uh, these, once they're approved, they will be safe and it will work. And, you know, even given the fact that, you know, you saw other vaccine candidates like the AstraZeneca and the Johnson Johnson undergo pauses uh, that have since been resumed. So, uh, you know, safety is always most important. And the FDA is certainly looking at that, as are these companies themselves. We've certainly seen uh, lineups for the flu shots here uh, be long this year, and and, and in many situations, people just didn't bother with it in past years. Obviously, the interest is there. Is it the same in the States? Is it the same in America? Is there the interest in the flu shot? Do you think that will uh, transpire into the the vaccination? You know, I I hope so. I mean, the last I saw, uh, when they took a poll, there was a little over half the people said they would get it, and, you know, certainly that's a low number. I mean, in any given year, uh, about 150 million people get vaccinated in the U.S. Uh, so I hope uh, that, you know, people take this seriously and they, you know, do educate themselves and people, you know, will ultimately, you know, roll their sleeve up and get this because, you know, we're going to need to do that. Uh, it can't be the type of thing where, you know, people just think, oh, I'm not going to do it. I'll just wait. You know, we need as many people as possible to get vaccinated uh, in order to get through this. Dean Finelli has been with his Ph.D. partner in the intellectual property department of Safarth Shaw's LLP Washington office. Dean, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Got an email from Pat. She said she was listening to the show while driving. Uh, we were talking about the nice weather, and she said she just got off the phone with her hubby an hour ago. Uh, he is driving in minus nine with ice and snow covered roads in Saskatchewan today. <laughs> Sucks to be in Saskatchewan today, as Pat put it. Uh, so, yeah, other parts of the uh, country certainly not enjoying the weather that we are today. Uh, that's for sure. And, of course, uh, a great weekend weather-wise. Uh, boy, oh, boy, just a blessing for all of us. And then uh, if you were watching the U.S. election, probably good news for you there, uh, or certainly people less anxious about it. And then the sad news uh, later in the weekend that the host of Jeopardy, uh, Alex Trebek, had passed away age of 80 obviously he'd been fighting pancreatic cancer uh for over a year and and was doing quite well initially with uh with that diagnosis considering what a uh what a traumatic disease it can be and and uh how i mean the the survival rate is 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 very very low uh let's bring in uh chris jansel uh jenselowich uh from global news and and and, um, and get a little bit more information on alex trebek because we hadn't really heard too much uh, about him of late. Uh, Chris, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, no problem. 
So we hadn't heard much from uh, Alex Trebek of late. Uh, he certainly was quite vocal during uh, the early parts of his treatment and such, and, and very positive that, that it was going so well. Uh, what can you tell us of, uh, of his condition, uh, certainly when it, when it took a turn for, a worse, uh, for the worse? Uh, was he making progress uh, considering, uh, obviously, the, the severity of this type of cancer? Yeah, so we found out in March 2019 that he'd been diagnosed with actually stage 4 pancreatic cancer, which anyone who's familiar with the disease knows that that is um, a pretty far advanced uh, disease. So, you know, prognosis was not great, but what he ended up doing was coming out pretty frequently with little videos, little testimonials, saying he's trying this treatment, saying he's responded very positively to this. He said at one point, I believe, um, toward the end of 2019, he said that uh, doctors were surprised at his, um, you know, his maintenance, his his progress, uh, which is very unusual for um, pancreatic cancer. Uh, and then, you know, as time started going on, we got into 2020, we heard fewer things from Trebek. However, I believe in early um pre-COVID times, um, he came out with uh, a statement again saying, you know, I tried this treatment, it didn't work for me, so we're going back to the drawing board. So the last thing I think we knew was that he he had tried um, a sort of an experimental treatment and it didn't end up working for him. Uh, but he was out and, and shooting and he was guesting on things and, you know, there was no slowing down for this man. And um, like you said before, he was incredibly positive about his situation regardless um, how bad the prognosis was. Um, so I know that he was shooting uh, episodes of Jeopardy upwards of five a day up until uh, the last days. So um, this is a man that wasn't really uh, giving into cancer at all. And how much has he done for pancreatic cancer? It, it's certainly one, one of those cancers that doesn't get a lot of attention, doesn't get a lot of research dollars. Has he changed that? Well, I think that he's definitely brought, uh, at the very least, uh, awareness. I'm not sure of an exact dollar amount or, or anything in terms of donation. But, um, yeah, for sure, awareness is raised for sure. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, he's he's brought to, brought to the forefront some treatments and, um, you know, some ways to approach it. And in overall, I think he really just brought... Uh, something that we don't usually see, which is this immense positivity and this immense uh, outspokenness about uh, his situation. Um, You know, he was out there in so many videos. You can go back and search online. There's at least four or five uh, testimonial-type videos where he talks about his situation. So I can only imagine what sort of uh, hope that gave to people battling cancer, people who know people battling cancer. Um, To me, um, like, it's completely separate from, I'm separate from cancer at the moment, uh, and everyone in my family, but it still even brought a sense to me just being that close with Alex Trebek. Uh, you know, every night we all watch him, well, a lot of us watch him. Uh, every weeknight we watched him on Jeopardy, and, you know, he feels like a family member in that sense. So, you know, it brought a lot of comfort to me to see him doing well and, um, you know, taking the battle really positively. Any idea, Chris, how long we will see him on Jeopardy? Are, are there many yeah. shows still yet to run? How, how, ahead, how far ahead is the taping schedule? So it's actually uh, pretty strange, but we, we actually will get him for at least another couple months. Uh, as it stands right now, uh, it's projected that the last episode that he'll be featured in uh, is December 25th, Christmas Day, which is a poignant wow. day. I know, isn't that something? That's what I said. Wow. I said, wow, first thing, wow, Christmas Day, you know? <laughs> It's beautiful. That is something. 
Yeah. Yeah, isn't it, though? Uh, and, and it was unbelievable the way he just kept plowing through and working through all of this as best he could. And I, was, I would absolutely agree in that. I, you wouldn't even know. You know, you wouldn't even really know. You know, there was, a, there was an episode, I believe, where he said, you know, I'm feeling tired today. Forgive me. I kind of messed up. He messed up his, his monologue at the beginning. Um, but, you know, other than that, I don't think there was any other indication that he was sick at all. Um, again, just, you know, a testament to this man who was probably very aware that, you know, everyone was watching and, and caring. And he just, you know, to the end was a class act. And, and, that's, and that's what he'll be remembered for, for sure. It'll be fascinating to see how we get to Christmas Day with this and fans of the show get to Christmas Day with this. And, you know, if there'll be any sort of uh, 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 memoriam for him or, or exactly how they will present that last show. I know it would be very interesting to see how they do it. It would be kind of cool if they had a bunch of categories, you know, that were uh, dedicated to him or, you know, something about him maybe even would be fascinating. Um, there's already some chatter on on Twitter and social media about you know potentially who's going to be the new host of Jeopardy. You know that's a big question. As yeah, well. that was really, my that's the next question I had written yeah, down. Yeah. I mean, any rumors in the wings? I mean, it, you know, this is as you said, it's one of those shows that's just it's a staple for people. So I, I can't imagine it ending. Uh, any idea who who's in the wings? So I saw something just now uh, before talking to you that the uh, George Stephanopoulos's team was allegedly uh, working to get him mm. in there. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, a lot of the chatter has really centered on Ken Jennings, who, of course, is the ultimate Jeopardy champion. He's won you know, Why? <laughs> million dollars. Uh, he's funny. Uh, he already works in trivia, so there's a possibility. But I honestly think that's too obvious, too cliche. We need to have someone different. I personally was interested in LeVar Burton. Um, I put out that idea. Um just because I thought, you know what? Wow, where did that come from? I don't know. Pop where did that head. one come from, Chris? I'm like reading Rainbow I, I, in my head. I don't know. I just, I just <laughs> yeah. popped in there, and I, I, I thought LeVar Burton would be a really awesome, you know, he, he has the same sort of gentle yeah. feeling to him, you know? I just thought that that would work, but we'll see if that takes off, and if, you, if that does happen, you're here first, right? You heard it on CHML. You know what? You, you bring up a very interesting point too, Chris, is, and, and that is, it, will it be someone who uh, is like um, Alex Trebek in the sense that has sort of a mild-mannered uh, way about him or her? Or, or there's another thing. Who says it has to be a guy? I mean, it could easily be a woman. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Or, or something completely different, you know, something, someone with, with more star power or more pizzazz. But that would sort of take away from what the game show is. It will be fascinating. It'll be, that, that's a tough, a, a tough, those are big shoes to fill, tough job to very, fill. Very, very hard, for sure. But then if you take a look at someone like Bob Barker, for example, host of Price is Right Forever, and then now Drew Carey does it. And you know, don't, you know what, Drew Carey. At first, I was a yep. little, you know, I didn't like him too much, but then now I think he's great. So at all, you know, maybe it's just a little slow growth period. You know, whoever it is, uh, it'll take a little bit of getting used to. I think. It'll be fascinating to see if it starts right when the new uh, starts right in just in January when uh, the new season starts and, and the new year starts. If they'll have a, have a bit of hiatus at all. Yeah, we'll have to see. I mean, I think that, you know, Alex, again, uh, Trebek was sick for a very, uh, quite a while, like a year and a bit. So um, I would imagine Trebek was probably even involved in the discussion about who who would replace me. You know, it's been, a, you know, a year and a half uh, since he was diagnosed. So I'm pretty certain that um, Trebek had a say in some idea, at least, on who, who would take up the mantle. 
Unbelievable. And as Chris says, uh, December 25th, the last show. Chris uh, Jenselovich has been with us from Global News. Chris, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Of course, the passing of Alex Trebek over the weekend and uh, enough shows done that this will run until Christmas Day. Isn't that something? Uh, To talk more about uh, the impact that this has had on research and just bringing awareness to this type of cancer, let's bring in Michelle uh, Capobianco, CEO, Pancreatic Cancer Canada, and is with us now. Michelle, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you for having me on. So obviously sad news over the weekend with the passing of Alex Trebek. Uh, you know, we've heard of, uh, of pancreatic cancer and, and obviously uh, how fatal it can be and such. Um, what does this do to help generate interest and, and create more research and, and funding for pancreatic cancer? Well, first and foremost, our thoughts go out to Alex's family. Pancreatic cancer is a lethal, horrible disease for anyone to go through, and and we wish more people um, did not have to go through it. But the reality is that famous people have been dying from pancreatic cancer for many years. Patrick Swayze, Steve Jobs, Pavarotti. It keeps happening, and we certainly keep getting an increased level of awareness, but here's reality. Statistics haven't changed of pancreatic cancer in 40 years. So unfortunately, losing a celebrity while it gets people talking about it isn't actually changing anything with respect to the disease. We have raised collectively more than enough sympathy. It is time that we raise funds for research because that is the only solution to this disease. You know, I've heard others say that, that, you know, pancreatic cancer um, just doesn't seem to get the attention of other cancers. Therefore, as a result, does not get the research and development dollars, uh, uh, research dollars that it needs. Is that the situation here that it just it's one of those cancers that for some reason uh, it just hasn't generated uh, the revenue needed to 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 find cures? It's exactly what's happened. And to this day, large cancer organizations still put a very small amount of their budget towards this, which is the third deadliest cancer. People don't put the right amount of money to it, in part because of the reaction you hear now with Alex Trebek passing. There's shock when someone dies. It's very sudden. Often it's three months from diagnosis to death. It happens suddenly. People get the mindset of, oh, that's the one where you die. Isn't that terrible? Full stop. What we need to get to is something very similar to what happened 40 years ago with breast cancer. They have the same rates of survival that pancreatic cancer does today. A relatively small group of people decided that there's enough sympathy had been raised, money needed to be raised for research. And those statistics for breast cancer have turned right around. And that's what I hope really comes out of this is that people realize they need to donate and they need to donate to organizations like ours who are funding research right around the world. It's vitally important. You know, you bring up a valid point. Everybody hears the word pancreatic cancer and, oh, yeah, that's the one you, you, you know, you don't recover from. It's the one you, you don't come back from. Whereas we've heard with so many other cancers, the great progress that we've made over, over the years. Is it that it is that type of cancer or is it we just don't know enough about it? We just haven't, we haven't uh, focused on this the way we have the other ones. That's exactly it. We don't know enough about it because there hasn't been enough focus. When we are able to focus, some fascinating breakthroughs have come about. We're doing some really interesting research projects right now looking for biomarkers, which will lead to serious change. But 
we are struggling. We're struggling. Like every other charity, we were struggling well before COVID to draw attention to this and to get people to open their wallets. Uh, we, we talked about, obviously, the advantage, uh, unfortunately, of having a celebrity that will draw attention to this sort of thing. But why isn't the fact that, I believe you said it was the third, uh, uh, the third deadliest cancer that there is, why is that not getting attention? I really couldn't tell you. We're, we're in fact, on track to become the second deadliest. I mean, it is the only cancer where basically the only major cancer where the mortality rates are rising, where every other cancer they're dropping. And it, and it is it really gets down to, I, I realize I'm harping on this, but it really gets down to research. We really need to make this cancer a priority so that we don't pop up periodically when yet another celebrity succumbs to the disease and talk about how terrible it is. Um, I hate to phrase it this way, but is it because it's just not a fashionable disease? It's not a fashionable cancer. It's not like breast cancer. Uh, it's not like lung cancer. Yeah, I mean, you know, each cancer sort of suffers from its own own issues. And certainly with lung cancer, people still um, yeah. fall under the same concept that they think that people somehow smoked and deserve to get it. Um Pancreatic cancer is hard. The pancreas is even hard to see, hard to find. Um, it's hard to see on an x-ray. You need better imaging. A lot of doctors don't know what to look for. And the number one issue is the signs and symptoms are so incredibly mild. Pain in the middle back, mild nausea, sleeplessness, mild depression. For a lot of people, that's a Monday morning, and I don't mean to be facetious. Mm, that's often yeah. what we feel, and we don't go and follow up with the doctor. And if we do follow up, has our GP seen enough of these cases that he or she realizes how quickly we need to be treated? Because it's not a matter of let's wait a couple of months and see if it passes. It's can we get in a clinical trial or can we be treated in the next four weeks? What do we know about it? What do we know? Do we know anything about causes? We don't know anything about causes. Um, other than sort of some of the general things that cause cancer, like obesity, for instance. Um, we do know that the late onset of diabetes, uh, rapid weight loss, those can be signs that something's going on. There is a genetic component. Certainly, we've heard a lot in breast cancer about the BRCA gene. The BRCA gene also affects people with prostate, ovarian, and pancreatic cancer. So if you have that gene in your family, you need to be aware, and your GP needs to be aware that it's a risk. So we're learning more and more about some biomarkers and how different cancers, different parts of pancreatic cancer react. But it's not one kind of cancer in the pancreas. It's many, many different kinds. And it's, uh, it's a complicated issue. But hey, we've, as a society, we've battled complicated issues before. Breast cancer, as I said, women were dying with a 40% mortality rate and higher. It's time we make a change with pancreatic. What uh, what cancers are getting attention? Uh, you know, for example, you said this was the third deadliest. What are the first two? Uh, lung and ovarian, right? Are deadly. I think that um, I think that breast continues to get um, a large amount of attention. I don't want to say an inordinate amount of attention. I'm a breast cancer survivor myself, so I'm especially grateful about the amount of money that's gone into breast. But I think people kind of get on a wagon and get used to it and think a pink ribbon on everything and, and sort of mm. think that that's encompassing somehow all cancers or that if you give to an organization that's looking after all cancers, somehow those deadliest ones are going to be looked after. 
but the truth is they're not. And, and that's why organizations like ours exist because we really need to get people to focus on this one. And uh, it may not be sexy, but uh, sure deadly. Where is the Canadian Cancer Society on this? The Canadian Cancer Society, since their merge with the Canadian Breast Cancer Foundation, uh, continues to put a large amount into breast cancer. Um, we've asked them on several occasions to work with us to give more money to pancreatic cancer. Um, so far, that hasn't come up in their interest level, and uh, they continue to give what I consider to be a relatively small amount compared to the amount they're bringing in every year. Mm. If people want to find out more, Michelle, where can we go? PancreaticCancerCanada.ca. Please go on and learn more about it. Learn about the signs and symptoms, and please donate. Michelle Capobianco has been with us, CEO of Pancreatic Cancer Canada, speaking, uh, obviously, about the disease. And hopefully Alex Trebek's passing can bring some uh, much-needed research and money uh, to help this uh, form of cancer, uh, Pancreatic Cancer Canada. Michelle, thanks for the time and insight. Be well. Thank you. You too. Good luck with this. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.